Hello, everybody, and welcome to this special Northern Ireland edition of Inside Briefing. I'm Jill Rutter. I'm a senior fellow at the Institute for Government. A week is a long time in politics. It now seems an age ago when we were speculating whether Rishi Sunak would be facing resignations and becoming the fourth Conservative Prime Minister to be brought down by Brexit in the days before he finally unveiled what we now know as his Windsor framework. Instead, we got a warm press conference in Windsor and perhaps even more surprisingly, a very good reception on the Conservative backbenches in Parliament, despite Sunak reminding MPs at length just how bad the initial Johnson-Foss deal they voted for was. And his cabinet, as we record, remains intact. There is still some opposition. Boris Johnson said he would be unable to support the Windsor framework. The ERG is still studying it. And in Northern Ireland, the Democratic Unionists are still waiting to give their final verdict, though some of their MPs, like Sammy Wilson and Ian Paisley Jr., have joined Jim Allister of the TUV in making clear that for them... As Ian Paisley put it, the mustard is not cut. Words used, uh, interestingly, also by Nigel Farage. Remember him. So to dissect the deal and to focus in particular on what it means for Northern Ireland, but also to bring in a European dimension, I am joined by John Campbell of BBC Northern Ireland, Sam McBride of the Belfast Telegraph, both joining us, I think, from Belfast, Georgina Wright of the Institut Montaigne, joining us from Paris, and our very own Jess Sargent, who I think is here in London. So let's get stuck straight in. Georgie, let me start with you. Why did the EU decide to get serious with Sunak? Was this deal, as some people have said, really available to his predecessors? So that's a really good question, Jill. I think there are three reasons why this deal, uh, you know, materialised now. The first is that, yes, absolutely, um, the EU Commission, but also, I think, EU capitals just tended to trust Sunak more. Um, As soon as he came to power, you had uh, fewer um, comments coming out of London that were either directly criticising the EU um, and there was just a sense that he was going to want to understand the detail and want to be constructive. So I think that really mattered. Um, and the second point, I think, is the context really matters here, where we are in a period where there is war in Ukraine, war in Europe. Um, and there was a sense from, from EU capitals I spoke to that there was really willingness and appetite to just have a better relationship with London. And there was an understanding that the Northern Ireland Protocol wasn't working. We're going to try and make it work. Oh, and we've got a Prime Minister in the UK who's willing to do that and, you know, willing to come around the table and be constructive. So I think both Rishi Sunak himself, his team, but also the context um, was just ideal for this new deal to, to fall. Okay, so that's why the EU was prepared to negotiate. We know why the UK was sort of prepared to negotiate, uh, perhaps. But Jess, can you give us a quick rundown of what exactly is in the deal on the Prime Minister's first area, what he calls the free flow of goods? Yeah, so at its kind of very basic, the UK and the EU have agreed to minimise the extent of checks and paperwork on goods going between Great Britain and Northern Ireland and staying there. So creating this green lane that a lot of people have been talking about, um, meaning that only goods that are destined for the Republic of Ireland and the rest of the EU are subject to those full checks and controls. So in terms of customs, um, the UK and the EU are proposing to expand an existing scheme that's already used to allow some goods to move tariff free. 
um, and allow traders to use the scheme to have simplified customs paperwork. So at the moment, there's a need for full customs declarations um, every time a good goes between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Um, what the Windsor framework would do is reduce that quite significantly. So uh, traders could instead perhaps just provide a description of goods and the UK government would do the back end of that. Um, and there wouldn't be any actual checks, customs checks on goods unless smuggling is suspected. So unless there's a particular risk there. Um, on ter- in terms of animal and plant products, which is another area that's been uh, a key concern for Northern Ireland businesses and retailers in particular, there's a special arrangement there that allows traders selling prepackaged agri-food goods to be consumed in Northern Ireland. So we're talking here about supermarkets, retailers, wholesalers. It could be caterers for sort of schools, those sorts of things. They only need to have one piece of paperwork per consignment that's moved across from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, as opposed to a piece of paperwork for every single item. And the number of physical inspections of those will also be dramatically reduced, so to about 5%. Um, The other big win for the UK is that those goods will only need to comply with EU rules related to animal and plant diseases, so where there's a risk that uh, things could spread, um, but they can still follow UK rules in other areas. So if the UK makes changes, for example, on genetic modification or organics, um, retailers and supermarkets won't need to comply with EU law in those areas. Um, the other kind of big ticket items, we've got sausages and chilled meats will be able to move freely across the Irish Sea. Uh, big win for sausage lovers there. Um, and also seed potatoes. And there will be some paperwork for those, but it will be simplified Parcels is another area um, the UK and EU have agreed that you won't need uh, full customs declarations on, on parcels that are going between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Um, the caveat on all of this is that it's conditional on continued data sharing between the UK and the EU. And there are some safeguards that would allow the EU to suspend these measures if there are repeated or serious infringements. So if the UK is not holding up its side of the bargain. Um, but generally, I think what we'll see is uh, reducing the friction that the protocol as written could and would have created had it been fully implemented. So, John, uh, the Prime Minister is clearly hoping that these changes that Jess has just outlined remove the sense from Northern Ireland businesses, consumers, that they are shut off from the wider UK internal market. Has he pulled that off? How is this agreement being received by businesses in Northern Ireland on these issues we've just covered? I think certainly among businesses, um, this gives them most of what they were asking for. So really, there were three main asks coming from the business community, which is that it should be easier to move goods from from Great Britain into Northern Ireland. And that was the the main focus of uh, Rishi Sunak's deal with the red lanes and the green lanes. Secondly, they wanted to make sure that the privileged access that they get to the EU single market under the protocol remains. So that was also achieved. And the other thing which business really wanted was something which was going to be a durable agreement, something where they could actually look at that and say, well, this is a basis on which we can plan our businesses and invest. So at a, at a top line, that's certainly welcome. I think one thing business has, has realised in the, in the recent days is this, as its name suggests, is very much a framework agreement. It is not a detailed operational plan. So there is more work which is going to have to be done to turn this into changes on the ground. So, for example, there's the, the new trusted trader scheme for, for the green lane overall. There's a specific trusted trader scheme for agri-food. Parcel operators are going to have to do something. There's also going to be the, the, the labelling requirements, which will mainly fall 
on on GB businesses. Um, and all this is supposed to start being in place by the autumn. So business is keen now to start to see the details of how this all gets operationalized. I suppose where some of the nervousness might be is they think back to the implementation of the original protocol where businesses in GB in particular just were not ready. Um, and, and that is where you saw a lot of the big problems um, at the start of, of 2021. Um, I think part of the reason for that is the UK government was not upfront and honest to businesses about what changes were coming and what they'd have to do to sell into Northern Ireland. But we're now in a very different political situation where hopefully there can be clear communication with those suppliers in, in GB because I think that that is something you know, which absolutely has to be remembered. For this to, to work and do what it's supposed to do, some of those suppliers in, in GB who may have stopped selling to Northern Ireland need to be convinced that the new arrangements are sufficiently easy and flexible that they want to start trading again. So it's, of course, quite feasible, I suppose, that we might start seeing not for the EU stickers on our M&S sandwiches in uh, you know, stores on this side of the border because you know, to have a single label across the entire UK. Yeah, that, that, that's going to be interesting to see what the, the attitude of uh, the, the, the GB manufacturers and suppliers is because th- this is one big bit of assurance for the EU is to say that by 2025, basically all relevant goods, uh, which is basically food products, which aren't shelf stable, which come into Northern Ireland, need to have this new bit of, bit of labelling. So one would assume that for some manufacturers in, in GB, it will just make sense to have that um, not for EU on, on what they sell across the whole of the UK. The government is also promising there will be financial assistance to the, the sector to help with this change over to this new labelling regime. But at the moment, um, we don't know exactly how much that would be, nor who exactly would qualify for it. So actually, John, I was going to ask you about that. The government's had to be spending quite a lot of money to support traders managing the sort of new regime in Northern Ireland ever since the sort of protocol uh, as was became operational. You know, is that forever and a day that we're going to have to do that? Or you know, will we finally wean business off government support to do with the new trading arrangements? The, the key um, institution or, or, or mechanism which the government funded um, to, to manage the protocol is something called the TSS, the Trader Support Service, which helps businesses with their, their customs declarations, which they need to move goods from, from GB to Northern Ireland. Now, given that you are still going to have to declare goods it looks for the meantime that the government is going to maintain the TSS as as a free service because you know as originally drawn that the TSS was only supposed to be temporary and then businesses were supposed to sort of go into the market and basically pay for their their own customs clearance assistance or else do the business in house but for the moment it looks like the TSS is staying and one assumes that that it's that it's a, a free service if if that is to be changed we we've not heard that detail yet one final question to you, uh, John, uh, just in this section about, you know, we've talked about the sort of trade across the borders, but what rules, if I'm a producer in Northern Ireland, a farmer or a manufacturer, whose rules do I abide by for the goods that I'm producing in Northern Ireland? And will I be able to export those goods into the GB market? Well, basically, you'll be producing to, to EU rules. One of the things um, which was in the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, which now is now going to be, be dropped, was this idea of a dual regulatory regime where businesses in Northern Ireland would be able to produce to either um, UK standards or to EU standards. This was something which, on the whole, business in Northern Ireland did not like the sound of because they thought it was going to be too complicated 
And it would also start to create ambiguity by which standards they were producing to. And so for businesses, particularly in agri-food and pharmaceuticals, which um, sell into the, the wider EU single market, their view was this was, this was a bad idea, which was likely to have seen them locked out of that market. A, a, fuel, a full system of fuel regulatory regime has, has not happened. But on that question of will businesses be able to, to sell those goods into um, the wider UK, of course, because the government has made that long-standing promise of, of unfettered access and um, that businesses um, which are, are producing goods uh, lawfully in Northern Ireland can continue to sell those into any part of the UK. So we'll have to put up with goods made to EU standards this side of the uh, this yeah. side of the channel. There's a, there's a bigger question then, you know, to how, how much really are EU and UK standards going to diverge? Even, even with the, the, the um, retained EU, EU law bill, what is actually going to happen in, in practice in terms of divergence? I mean, that was actually quite an interesting part. I thought of the government command paper was where it detailed at great length how many product standards were actually set by wider international standards. And, yeah. uh, and, actually, and you start um, thinking, well, what's the point of all this? You start to ask yourself at that, at that moment when you see the government say, well, you know, we're, we're all basically operating off a global standard here anyway. That was part of the thinking behind Theresa May's common rule book, that that wasn't a sort of massive concession to the EU on product standards. But uh, that was quite a long time ago. Um, Sam, if I'm a consumer in Northern Ireland, am I going to see any difference um, as a result of this framework? Um, you know, will I see things on my shelves that haven't been appearing Will I have a better visit to a garden centre or not? Are some of the things that the Prime Minister described as quintessentially British things to do? Well, as a gardener, I very much hope that the latter of those things does prove to be the case. But I think that what we've all learned about this area is that it's phenomenally complicated. Lots of people looked at the protocol last time, thought they understand it, and in, in many cases did broadly understand it, that it would mean an Irish sea border, it would mean some checks, it would mean some bureaucracy. But it was only when it actually started that people really got to see the really significant element of tiny little bits of legislation that have a massive impact. So something like British soil being banned from Northern Ireland. Um, and that meant that if you have a bare root apple tree coming in from Yorkshire, that's not possible. There might be a few molecules. I mean, no one was talking about this until it actually happened. So I think that I'm I'm pretty skeptical about all of the spin right now. And even some of what is in the, the, the legal text here, because until we actually see how the market reacts to this, we can't really know. So I think that from in, in, in the broad terms, if you look at this, if, if it works as it has been presented, it ought to be a pretty seamless thing for most retail. Certainly supermarkets get, I think, the best deal out of this. They're, um, they're in such a significant position here as the place where people will really notice this. I think the government, for, for good political reasons, have put a lot of work into that and the EU have recognised that. That was one of the problems in the early days with things not showing up on shelves and people really noticing that. Now, it was slightly to do with COVID, but there were, there were clear elements. I mean, my, my local supermarket just half a mile out the window from me here um, had, had a rival supermarket's um, branded product on its shelves. Now, that's not normal. That was not to do with COVID. They were SPS products due to what had happened and due to their lack of preparation for what was coming. So I think until we see this, we'll not really know. But in, in broad terms, things like on, online shopping ought to be very simple. But the one caveat to the, this is that to get into the green lane, British firms have to register for the trusted trader scheme. That doesn't seem to 
to be a massively onerous thing. But if you're a tiny company with two members of staff or whatever, and you are selling into what might be just over 2% of your market in Northern Ireland, maybe even less than that, if you export elsewhere in the world, are you going to bother with this? Is it going to be just another hassle? And then even when you do that, you have these 21 data fields to send it to Northern Ireland. Most of those are things you would probably be doing anyway, name, address, item, um, value, etc. But I think until we actually see how businesses react to this, we can't quite be certain. But, but what we can be certain about is that it's a heck of a lot better than what was in the protocol. I mean, you had a bit of a run-in, didn't you, with the Prime Minister this week about whether he was slightly overclaiming uh, how he buried the Irish Sea border. Um, you just give us a background. Did you end up in a score draw with the Prime Minister, or are you declaring victory over him? <laughs> well, I'll let, I'll let other people judge that. I think that I mean I, I had written on um, Monday, I think, for Tuesday's Belfast Telegraph, and we, we obviously had very little time to see this deal on on Monday afternoon when it was released. But it was it was pretty clear to me that there was still a customs aspect to this. There was an EU briefing. There was, there was there was some very helpful EU material which didn't come from the British government, and I I think that it's quite striking that the EU preparation here for selling this um, has been much more impressive than on the British side. Um, but that's that's a, that's a, a, a separate issue here. I mean, r- really, really, the, 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 there's there's a very semantic aspect to this, frankly, but it is important. What the Prime Minister tried to say was that there is no customs border essentially whatsoever. These are not customs forms. They're so simple, nobody could possibly claim that this is a customs form. It's purely commercial data that is happening anyway. The EU says these are literally called simplified customs forms. Um, they make clear that, that, the, that the EU customs code still applies, even if parts of it are being waived effectively. And so there, there, there is what, what might be simply an argument about what we call these things. But the, 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 the bigger reality here is that what, what is in this is something which camouflages the Irish sea border. It still exists. If the EU wanted, um, in circumstances where there was a breakdown in the British-EU relationship, if they wanted to make things difficult legally, they've got a lot on their side to do that with. And so what the Prime Minister was trying to say was that essentially there is no customs bureaucracy. He started off by saying there's no burdensome customs bureaucracy. That might be something that he could argue. He then said essentially there, there, there really is none whatsoever. I don't think that anybody remotely objective looking at this can say that there is not a customs border, albeit a much softer one, in the Irish Sea at this point. And Georgie, um, some sort of quite hardline EU um evangelists for the EU Customs Code were saying until quite recently that this sort of deal was never going to be possible, that this was the EU's external frontier and these sorts of carve-outs that Rishi Sunak seems to have managed to negotiate were not were not on offer um, and couldn't be contemplated. Is this causing worries in some member states or are they pretty much on board? So I think the evangelists have probably been proven wrong uh, on that point. Um, I think John is absolutely right when he says this is a framework agreement, not a detailed plan. Um, I do, and I said this before, I think trust was essential and it does wonders because your starting point, if you're the EU, is, you know, we're going to have to see how this works in practice, but we trust that Sunak can get it done. That trust was not the same for Boris Johnson or Theresa May. So I think trust does you know, do wonders. But yes, people inside the commission and people inside, you know, the 27 governments will be looking at how this works out in in practice. But I think, you know, and I said this before, 
it's a very different context right now. A, um, we're, you know, the major war means that we need to be talking about the UK with the UK regularly. We know that we understood that this was a problem, so we needed to resolve it. But overall as well, um, I mean, I was really struck on the day where the Windsor uh, framework agreement was, was published. No one in Paris was talking about it. It's just not as a salient issue as it used to be. So I think people whose jobs it is inside of government will be watching closely. And yes, some people are worried about it not being able to, to work in practice. But overall, I think um, EU governments are happy that a solution has been found. Of course, there are a little, you know, few hurdles now that the, the, the council, so that's the grouping of the 27 countries, need to approve it. And then the European Parliament may need to be involved, especially if, if there are amendments to be made to the Northern Ireland Protocol. But overall, I I think um, people are mostly happy that these negotiations are over and, and very kind of hopeful that it will work out. So so I think overall um, people are happy. I think that the member states can take some reassurance about this new arrangement when you consider the fact that the protocol, as originally negotiated, has never been implemented. And for the last two years, we have had these, these grace periods um, where the, the supermarkets have reduced documentation and so forth. And the single market does not appear to have suffered any injury as a result. And sausages have been on sale, haven't they? Yes, yeah. And, and you know, there, there, have, there have been no you know, issues which have which has been identified as, as damaging the single market. And so, you know, what this does is, is helps to at least codify, if you like, those grace periods, maybe give a little bit more uh, legal assurance to, to, the, to the EU there. So I think, you know, for... Certainly, you know, the, the, the customs code freaks may be a bit concerned, but I, I, I think at, at a kind of real world level, um, it should be OK. And that actually David Frost could possibly chalk up as a bit of a victory for his uh, proof on the proof of concept on the ground that you could actually run these grace periods without uh, and stack up the evidence that it wasn't a huge existential threat to the single market. John, I wanted to move on from the sort of free flow of trade to sort of one of the big frustrations that Rishi Sunak clearly experienced when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer was when he made changes to UK VAT rates and put forward his proposal for reform of UK alcohol duties to uh, to reflect um, alcoholic strength, um, that he couldn't apply those in Northern Ireland. Is that now sorted? Does the UK now have complete freedom on indirect taxes in Northern Ireland? Well, the, the, the stuff around VAT, I, I think, was maybe a bit overspun in advance um, because it's it's by no means a complete repatriation of VAT powers for for Northern Ireland. Um, it, it is at the moment um, sort of narrowly focused on um, VAT around um, effectively things which you can attach to your house. So, like things like you know, uh, an air source heat pump or or a solar panel or whatever can now benefit from those special lower um, VAT rates. It, it is also worth saying that the the original protocol did have in it a flexibility. If the if the UK was doing something on on VAT, it could basically get into discussions with the Commission about whether or not this would apply to to Northern Ireland. And with the the solar panels one, which Rishi Sunak talks about, I don't know whether those, whether those conversations ever took place or not. And then um, on the, the excise duties, there's a bit of movement there as well. But and, and on VAT, there's also the possibility that further goods um, could have um, lower rates of, of um, UK VAT applied. And there's, again, some sort of, if you like, formal talking shop set up between the EU and the UK to continue to, to manage this process. But 
there is it's quite a narrow change actually on VAT. It is by by no means um, a complete change. And Jess, and um, the third thing that the Prime Minister wanted to address in his new framework were concerns about the democratic deficit and governance. We know that for some people, at least in Northern Ireland and also on the Conservative backbenches, this is less about the practicalities of day-to-day life in Northern Ireland than about Northern Ireland's constitutional position. Both Rishi Sunak and Ursula von der Leyen seemed a bit vague when they were pressed on issues of continuing jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice on Monday. So did they have something to hide? I think certainly uh, the role of the ECJ seems to be one of the areas where the UK hasn't got as much as it might have liked. Um, Certainly, I think there is the acceptance of the principle that where EU law applies, the ECJ has jurisdiction. That's been one of the EU's red lines. Um, And, you know, we have heard some sort of justification for that, making clear that, you know, EU law needs to apply if uh, Northern Ireland wants continued access to the to the single market. I mean, one of the things that the Prime Minister has said is that he's reduced the amount of EU law applies and therefore the, the kind of scope of the European Court of Justice. But I think that's a little bit of a tenuous claim. I think uh, he's, he's reduced the amount of goods that that EU law might apply to. But in terms of the, the number of regulations listed in the annex of the protocol, they are, they are broadly similar. So I think uh, there has been perhaps a bit of a, a fudge on that one in explaining it, but not as much as some people and particularly uh, people in the European research group might have liked. And Jess, you've done a fantastic diagram to try and explain uh, what was actually befuddling the BBC subtitlers when we were watching the press conference, the Stormont break, uh, which is break with an A-K-E, not a sort of you know, E-A-K break. Uh, can you explain it? I can I can try. <laughs> I think the first thing to say about the break is that it's very complicated and quite unclear. I think we've had to go through five documents to be able to figure out exactly what it says. But so from my understanding, I think the first thing to say is that the break applies to changes, uh, amendments or updates to existing EU law that applies under the protocol, not new areas. So that's the first thing to say. Um, it seems like if there is concern about those amendments or updates, then 30 MLAs from two parties can trigger the break. But in order to do so, they have to prove several things. They have to prove that it's a last resort and they're only using it in exceptional circumstances, that they've exhausted all other routes for discussion with the with the UK, with the EU. And they need to demonstrate that the change of EU law differs significantly from the original is one of the first conditions. And the second is that it would have a significant impact on everyday life. So if the UK accepts that all those conditions have been met, then it can notify the EU that the the break has been triggered and that act is suspended. I think one thing it's worth noting here is that all that needs to happen within two months of the EU act being published. So it's quite a short timescale we're talking about here. But then we don't stop there. There's there's more to the story. Um, So after the break's been triggered and the EU act suspended, the UK and EU then consider that act as if it were a completely new act being added to the protocol. And this is a slightly different process through which the UK can decide whether or not to adopt that act. There's a decision point here for the UK government. Now, in making that decision, the UK is proposing uh, that there should be a cross-community vote in the Assembly. So that's um, a, a vote that requires a certain threshold of unionists, nationalists and MLAs overall. And that the UK will only agree to re-adopt the act 
if there is cross-community support for doing so. Although, again, here there are a few caveats that if the UK thinks that there's exceptional circumstances or it wouldn't create regulatory barriers, it can override that vote and add it anyway. So this is a kind of veto mechanism. So there's several kind of decision points and opportunities for the the UK government to sort of mediate uh, the use of the break. And I think finally, the thing that's worth saying is that even when the Act has been kind of permanently vetoed, uh, as it could be, that's not without consequence. There is the potential that the EU could take remedial measures in that area. So to address any concerns that Northern Ireland might not be applying Um, EU law fully in that area. And if there's a dispute about whether the break has been used correctly, uh, there's also the possibility that if the arbitration panel, which is part of the withdrawal agreement dispute mechanism, agree, that EU law will apply again. So it's a very complicated process, lots of different decision points, but ultimately it does create an incentive for the UK and the EU to try and resolve potential problems that might arise as a result of regulatory divergence before we get to this point. And Sam, I'm going to come on to the position of the unionists in a second. But when I was watching the debate in Parliament on uh, after the Prime Minister's statement or the comments on that, it seemed that the SDLP and the Alliance Party were a bit concerned about the break. That might make it more palatable with the unionists, I'm not sure. But are there any concerns being expressed on that side that this could lead to Northern Ireland diverging and reducing its access to the single market? There have been concerns from those parties, but I think that in in broad terms, they've been at the margins. They haven't been out screaming about it. I think they're they're still looking at this. They realise that the fine detail of this hasn't been finalised. There will be legislation coming through Parliament, and that's when we'll know more about this. The the NI Secretary of State, Chris Heaton-Harris, has been asked about this on Radio Ulster, and in a, in a fairly excruciating interview, he didn't really seem to know exactly how this would work or what the government would do at the final stage. He, he, he was certainly stopping well short of saying that if 30 MLAs in Stormont say they want something blocked, that the government will automatically block it. That's obviously not going to happen. So I think when you, when you simplify this all down, all power here really lies with London, lies with the British government to veto any EU law that, 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 that is referred to them by Stormont until the point that, it, that, that, that they actually do so, and then it goes to arbitration. And then, then it's someone outside the UK entirely. They have it in their hands, and it's not a simple decision to take because there can be retaliation. But I think that, as, as Jess said there, the real, the real value of this, the real significance of this, is not just in terms of basic democratic principles, that suddenly the, the, um, the people who are, who are um, put in Stormont by the people of Northern Ireland have some say at whatever level in these rules, but also that, that, that they can use this as leverage with the EU. There is some incentive for them to, to say, right, we will take this seriously. And I think that e- even, even aside from the, the sort of big stick, if you like, of this veto, it would look very bad in PR terms for the EU if there was a genuine concern about something and they just brushed off what Stormont said. So I think that is an improvement. But again, as with so many aspects of this deal, it was pretty significantly oversold as almost a unionist veto on Monday. That is certainly not what it is and not what I think it will ever be. I, I was also just thinking there, there is a slight precedent or, or prototype almost for, for the, the, the Stormont break. If we think back to... The, the winter of 2020, before the protocol had even come in, at that stage, supermarkets got really concerned that there was no way they were going to be able to operate the unmitigated protocol. 
And that led to a joint letter from the then First and Deputy First Ministers, uh, uh, Arlene Foster and Michelle O'Neill. And I think that's the first time we actually had a, a joint statement from them on the protocol. They wrote to the European Commission saying the supermarkets aren't going to be able to cope. You've got to do something. And then ultimately we got the, the joint committee discussions between Maros Jevcevic and Michael Gove, which led to the supermarket grace periods, um, which have been in place ever since. So that might give the flavour of, of the sort of um, bar that needs to be reached for the break to be credibly pulled. You know, you know, so that clearly was not a trivial issue that the, the supermarkets feared they wouldn't be able to supply Northern Ireland. And, and it gives you an, an idea of, of you know, something which, um, the, the, where the parties could potentially say this, this is where we need to take action. Yeah, no, Georgie, you wanted to come in. Yeah, just very quickly. Um, I mean, the EU has a number of trade disputes with countries around the world, but there's one key difference when there's an agreement, a trade agreement or some form of agreement in place that governs that trade is that no dispute has ever reached arbitration. They've always been resolved diplomatically through joint committees. And I think there is a sense in in Brussels, and of course, you know, what the sort of Northern Ireland Protocol is different uh, for all the reasons that we've discussed. But there is optimism and hope that actually when you do have a good working relationship, that you can resolve those issues um, diplomatically. And and there is hope also that the, you know, the the democratic element that, that's just been discussed is also being addressed through these changes. So I think there is a sense that that if there are disputes, that they can be resolved um, uh, without having to reach arbitration. But there's still that in place in case you can't resolve them diplomatically. And it'd be interesting to see where the Irish government uh, as a sort of member state goes on some of these issues, as we saw when we had that uh, row in January 2021 about vaccine supplies um, of everybody coming down and forcing the commission to to back down on their original position. Sam, one of the big prizes for Rishi Sunak is clearly that this paves the way for the restoration of devolved government in Northern Ireland. And critical to that is the attitude of the Democratic Unionist Party who withdrew from the executive over their uh, dislike of the protocol in February uh, 2022. They've set out their seven tests for a new agreement. You've, I think, done an assessment, said it only passes two. Um, Intrigued by which two? And does it fall so far short in the others that the DUP will simply have to reject this deal? Well, these things, I suppose, are in the eye of the beholder. But I was surprised when I went through these tests as to how clear it was in, in, in most cases, because they were written to be ambiguous. They were written to give the party wriggle room. But actually, they were in such a desperate position when these were written. They were, they were, they were falling apart in the polls. The party was falling apart as a party. They were going through leaders and they, they really had to do something radical to try to stop that, that really massive collapse in their support. This was very successful in doing that. It's been very popular with their supporters. But the problem for them now is that because it actually is quite robust, it's really difficult for them to make any sort of credible argument that these all have been met. And that's what they said. But it's not even close as far as I can see. I thought that they had passed maybe two of these. Um, Those are that um, test four, that new arrangements must 
give the people of Northern Ireland a say in the making of the laws which govern them. So a say is a very loose form of words. And I think clearly there is a say, even if it's not in any way a, a final say, as it never was going to be. And also um, test five, um, which is that that the new arrangements must result in no checks on goods going from Northern Ireland to Great Britain. That was really not ever a very significant problem or from Great Britain to Northern Ireland and remaining in Northern Ireland there will still be a very small number of checks, but those are based on smuggling intelligence. Those are based basically on criminal um, justice enforcement and other enforcement agencies. So not the sort of standard border checks. Those, I think they can very credibly argue, have been met. Someone in government two or three weeks ago was briefing liberally that all of these tests had been met. I don't know why that was being done. It certainly didn't make things easier for the DUP, because at least if they were able to say, look, we have gone through this ourselves and we have judged this, that might carry some credibility with their supporters if they were able to carry it off. Having somebody in government say this before the DUP allegedly was even shown the text, I think really makes that much, much harder for them now. And what's the process now for them getting to a decision? When might we expect that? It's opaque and it's opaque because the DUP is a very centralised party, which is not really, I mean, it's, it's, it's still a fairly young, it's, sorry, it's, it's still a fairly young party for most of its history. It was led by the Reverend Ian Paisley. He, he was a, he was a very charismatic figure, as you know, and, um, the rules were in some ways subservient often to what he desired or what he said in any, in any particular meeting. So the actual period post him is relatively limited. I think that there are key figures in the DUP who will have to agree to this. The party officers that brings in people like Sammy Wilson, like Nigel Dodds, and um, then the wider party executive, which is broader than that, brings in people who speak for their councillors, speak for their local constituency associations, speak for the MLAs. But I think that as things stand, I would be pretty shocked if the DUP come out in favour of this. I think probably the best at this point that the government can hope for is that they sit on the fence about it. It's even now not entirely clear that that's really possible based on the um, wider mood of the party. And it may be that the best now for the government is that they object to this, but it's kind of a soft no. And in a few months' time, they go back into Stormont anyway, loudly grumbling, denouncing everything, but saying, you know what, this Stormont break that you've given us, we're a bit sceptical about it. But we would be we would not be doing our jobs properly if we didn't give it a crack. Let's see if it works. And we'll judge it by that. And probably at that point, Jeffrey Donaldson hoping that by the time it actually is seen not to work, if indeed it doesn't work, that his voters have moved on and care more about other things. Very, very interesting. And is the sort of unionist community as a whole sort of united behind the DUP view? Or are we seeing any fracturing from the other unionist parties that we don't talk about uh, very often over here? So broadly, up until this point, the DUP has been very much representative of the broad unionist opinion. It's not it's not at, at, at all 100 percent, but it's very, very high. I think it is an interesting question now as to where unionist opinion goes. And as, as through many aspects of this, until we actually see this in practice, I don't think we, we, we really with any certainty can judge this. Lots of people did polling about unionists before the protocol came into operation. They didn't think that, that the level of opposition to it was what it subsequently became. So most, most ordinary people do not understand this stuff. That's not to be in any way patronizing. I don't understand half of this stuff. It's phenomenally complicated. And so it's only when people see what it means that they can 
give a meaningful view as to what they think of it. And I think that the really interesting question here is when it comes to the bit, when people see this, let's say in two years time when it's mostly operative, do most unionists actually care more about the practical things, having their normal products on the supermarket shelves, not being told by British retailers when they try to buy something online, we don't sell to Northern Ireland. Um, is, is that the sort of thing that they care more about? Or is it constitutional principle? Is it about the role of the ECJ? Is it that actually Northern Ireland doesn't really make all of its own laws anymore? Or is it actually that the real problem here with the protocol was that it did something quite dangerous? It married their constitutional um, line with their their really significant problems as they saw it in practical terms. And so they were able to see every day or every week in their lives little things that irked them and kept reminding them about the Irish Sea border. I think there's at least a significant chance that if the practical stuff is dealt with, the constitutional stuff will be something they don't like. But in many cases, is it will just not have the same cachet as it did before. And Jordan, one of the things people are saying over here about why the political climate change enabled Rishi Sunak to do that deal and sell it to his backbenches was that public opinion here was now more focusing on the economy and people were increasingly questioning you know, whether Brexit had damaged the economy or, or any benefits were materialising. I'm interested in, you know, Rishi Sunak went to some pains and got some mockery for stressing that Northern Ireland now was in a position to realise the benefits of its fantastic ability to export both into uh, the EU, but also while also having you know unfettered access to the rest of Great Britain. Are there any sort of material signs that any of this famous uh, no, this is making the market any more attractive for foreign direct investment. Yeah, well, the, the most exciting economic zone in the world was the, the phrase he used when, when he um, addressed workers at the, the Coca-Cola factory um, at Lambeg on the outskirts of Lisburn in Northern Ireland. And actually, Coca-Cola was one of those businesses um, which has all along said single market access is really important to the future of, of our business in, in Northern Ireland. And yes, of course, he, he was mocked by... Many people saying, well, if the single market access thing is so good, well, then why, why did we choose to give it up? The difficulty for the, the protocol in Northern Ireland as an investment proposition has been that it's been so unstable. You know, when you have the, the protocol bill there, when you have the EU and the UK in, in dispute, if you were to be going to the, the boardroom of an American manufacturer saying, Northern Ireland looks good because we can sell into the UK and we can sell also into the EU, without the, the sort of fetters which we would get if we set up anywhere else, um, the board might say, well, okay, that's fine. But are you sure this is going to uh, endure? Is this a durable relationship? Are we going to deploy you know, billions of dollars which, um, you know, for a project which will last decades uh, on the basis of, of a, a set of circumstances which, which don't look very stable? So I think that the hope would be then if we are now in a situation where it is a stable and durable solution, that the investment case can be made on, on the way that the case which which Rishi Sunak was making. Um, I think it's important to, to grasp that this is a pitch to manufacturers, essentially, because it concerns the trade in goods. And what it means is that if you are a US manufacturer and you want to sell into both those markets, well, if you set up in Scotland, for example, you wouldn't have the privileged access into the EU single market. If you set up in Gdansk, you wouldn't have the privileged access into the UK market, well, there's, where Northern Ireland gives you the privileged access into both those markets. So that is the proposition. 
now that the dust has settled a bit, let's see if it's convincing. So, John, you keep on mentioning the US as a potential source of uh, investment. Does this pave the way for a Joe Biden visit, even if devolved government's not back up and running? I think we're certainly going to get a a, a visit from a man called Joe. Um, That's (laughs) Joe Kennedy, um, who is the new US economic envoy to Northern Ireland. So um, I would expect him to be in, in Northern Ireland within the, the next few weeks. Um, there, there has a, been a tradition since the, the dawn of the peace process that there have been a special envoys, special US envoys to Northern Ireland. Mr. Kennedy's brief is appears to be a, a, a mostly economic one, so we can expect him in the not-too-distant future to be to be coming to, to drum up support. We will um, get the usual St. Patrick's Day exodus, um, where probably we can expect some of the parties to be in, in the, the local parties to be in the, in the White House. The question of, of a Joe Biden visit is still a bit up in the air. I, I think if Stormont was to be um, revived, then it would be a pretty much a nailed on certainty. If Stormont is still in, in abeyance, I think it's p- potentially a bit more doubtful. But Sam may have a view on that as well. Sam? My only view, I, I've no knowledge of whether it's going to happen or not, but my only view is that I've, I've always found it baffling that this has been wheeled out o- over, over the last few months, really, as something which some people thought would push the DUP towards agreeing a deal. First of all, the DUP are a bit queasy about the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, given that they didn't sign up to it, but they've kind of been working it for quite a long time. And that, that's, that's a fairly mixed message for them. So they're not particularly worried about what happens there. And secondly, lots of the DUP membership have got a very low view of Joe Biden in particular and of US presidents in general. Um, some of them, like Sammy Wilson and Ian Paisley Jr., were basically um, maybe 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 uh, to say that they were campaigning for Donald Trump is putting it too far, but they certainly made public that they wanted him to win. So the idea that they are, you know, in any way going to be influenced one way or the other by whether Joe Biden comes, actually, if anything, they probably don't want them to come in many cases. So I've always found that a curious form of um, pressure. Um, there, there are other pressure points for the DUP, but I'm not sure that's one of them. Okay, that's very interesting. Jess, back to, we've talked a lot about Northern Ireland, which of course we should do, because as Richie Sunak kept on stressing, this is primarily about Northern Ireland, the people of Northern Ireland. But the Prime Minister's political future did look as though it might be on the line uh, at the start of the week. Um, does he have to face the vote in Parliament? When might we expect that? So, yeah, on Monday, uh, Rishi Sunak did announce that there would be a vote in Parliament at the appropriate time. And I think there's a big question of when the appropriate time is. Some people are suggesting it might be post-budget. It might still be several weeks away. Um, So for that, we will just have to see. I think certainly the amount of resistance that we've seen from the European Research Group is perhaps not as big as some people were expecting. And it looks like there might only be a handful of rebels this particular time. He's got a lot of people on board, including those in government, Chris Heaton Harris and Steve Baker uh, being kind of key players here. So I don't think any vote will be critical in terms of uh, questions about whether or not it will pass. This is not 2019. Um, it looks like the, gov- the Prime Minister will be able to get this through on his own votes. And even if that's not possible, we know that Labour will support it. So one of the big questions is what Boris Johnson will do. Um, we've, he- we've heard all sorts of briefings over the past couple of weeks with that he might... Uh, he might vote against this deal or actually maybe there are too few rebels and it might be a bit embarrassing for him. So I think that will be the thing that people will be watching out for. But I suppose more for the political drama rather than the question of whether or not this deal will be implemented. His formula yesterday was consistent with uh, abstaining um 
either in person or simply not being available when the vote might happen. So we'll have to watch that space. And Georgie, to finish, um, does this usher in a brave new world of UK-EU cooperation? We saw uh, possibly the most um, amiable press conference since that Rose Garden moment when Nick Clegg and David Cameron, remember them, launched the coalition between Ursula von der Leyen and Rishi Sunak. Should we expect huge amounts of progress on lots and lots of other fronts? I have to say, I, I was quite um, relieved and sort of when I saw just the atmospherics being very different. Look, I think one of the things that, that I used to write about when I was still at Institute for Government was um, uh, the fact that I saw the UK-EU relationship being only driven by the trade agreement and the withdrawal agreement. Clearly here, now they seem to have resolved one of the big tensions in the relationship that does open the door to further cooperation, whether it's rebuilding Ukraine or supporting, continuing to support Ukraine financially, um, or whether, you know, you look at energy resilience on the continent. There are lots of ways that the UK and the EU can work together. But I think that depends on the government being clear on what it wants to do and where it sees uh, cooperation with the EU in its interest. And it also actually requires the EU to get its thinking cap on because, uh, you know, when you talk to people in Brussels, sometimes they say, well, there's no institutional relationship to talk about those other things. So it makes it complicated. I think that's not a good approach. And I think the EU needs to be thinking about it. And we've got a Franco-British summit in Paris next week. And I've heard very clearly from, from the French government that, you know, a solution around the Northern Ireland Protocol is helpful. It won't change drastically everything. And a lot of that bilateral relationship um, was about defence, which wasn't really conditional uh, upon you know, the UK's relationship with the EU. But it helps. It helps the atmospheric. So I think, yes, it does. It does usher in uh, opportunities if that's what both sides want. So, Georgie, should we be looking for some help from the French on small boats next week? One of the Prime Minister's top five priorities. Who knows? I'm, I'm on. I think next week is mainly going to be about political messaging, about showing that that we have turned the Brexit page, that that we realise that the bilateral relationship is important, and that France and the UK is the biggest, largest nuclear and military powers in Europe. It makes sense for them to work together. I think we can expect some language on small boats. Whether it will go as far as Rishi Sunak is hoping for, I don't know. Um, but I think we can expect some form of announcement. Okay, so the bromance will continue. I'm going to leave it there. There's so much more we could have got into. Uh, Jess will be very frustrated. We haven't had a long discussion about the implications of the retained EU law bill in the Lords this week, etc. But I think uh, that's been a very, very useful discussion. Uh, If you want to hear a bit more about Northern Ireland, we discussed it yesterday on the regular Inside Briefing podcast with David Liddington, former Conservative MP. So go and listen on that. Other stories are available on that as well. Uh, Please do continue listening to Institute for Government podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, we'd love it if you left us a fantastic review. So with that, thanks very much to my excellent panellists, John Campbell and Sam McBride in Belfast, Georgie in Paris and Jess in London. Thank you all very much for listening.